Dr Peter Hodgkinson is a liver transplant surgeon at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. Well, the worst part's probably getting up at two o'clock in the morning to do operations, but in, in some ways that's also the best part of my job. Dr Hodgkinson has one of the coolest jobs in medicine, giving people life-saving liver transplants, and he loves it. I think I'm very fortunate in that I have a job that I love and every day that I come to work, I count myself lucky for having this possibility of doing what I do. But how do people get to the stage that they need a liver transplant? And is there anything you can do to prevent yourself from ending up on Dr Hodgkinson's operating table? Welcome to this episode of My Amazing Body, a podcast that explores interesting, unknown and misunderstood parts of your body. Today, we're learning about your liver. Your liver is one of the most important organs in your body, but you might not know much about it. We asked Dr Hodgkinson to give us the basics. Where is it? What does it look like? And what does it actually do? So the the liver is uh, a large organ. In fact, it's the largest solid organ in your body. It sits in the upper part of your tummy. As I said, it's a very big organ. It weighs about one and a half kilos. To put that in context, your liver weighs about the same as a small chihuahua or a cricket bat. So the liver has is a nut brown colour. It's very soft like a sponge and the edges of it are, are normally a, a very sharp, well-defined edge. Your liver grows with you as you age. A baby's liver is much smaller than an adult liver and that's not the only growing it can do. If you have part of your liver removed because of disease or injury, it can actually grow back. So your liver is actually made up of eight different pieces. Doctors call them segments. And each of these eight segments has its own artery and vein and blood supply. And each of those eight segments can function individually to the other segments in the liver. So I can do an operation where I remove one of the segments or even more, sometimes up to six segments of the liver can be removed. And the other two segments will continue functioning just just like they always have. And these segments will grow bigger. And they will grow back, they'll grow so big that they actually grow back to the normal size of the liver. Now you'll only have two segments, but you'll have two very big segments, so you'll have a normal size liver. And this regeneration capacity of the liver is quite amazing and is unique to the liver. So your liver is big, really big, and it can regrow on its own. It sounds pretty special to me. It uh, has many functions. In fact, it's sort of estimated it has about 500 different functions. And so as you can imagine, it's a very important organ and you can't live without it. So it makes certain proteins which help us do our bodily functions, uh, in particular things like clotting the blood or helping us regulate our energy intake or our energy expenditure. It also detoxifies our blood. So a lot of the toxins from the environment are removed by the liver. It also helps in the digestion of food, so it makes a liquid called bile, and the bile is excreted into the bowel where it helps us break down food. And it also has a number of functions in making and getting rid of old blood cells. As Dr Hodgkinson says, you can't live without your liver. If your liver gets sick, you're going to know about it. If your liver's not working, you feel pretty terrible. So as I mentioned, it, it helps uh, with making proteins and hormones and energy regulation in your body. So if your liver's not working, 
your management of energy regulation is very out of whack. So what, what you experience is people often feel very tired with no energy. They find they have to sleep more. A lot of the other functions also go out of whack. So you can have a decreased uh, amounts of protein made in the body. And one of the outcomes of this is that you retain a lot of fluid in your body. And so people with liver failure can have very swollen particularly legs, but all over their body can be quite swollen. They don't tend to absorb food properly or nutrients properly, and so that also impacts the way you feel. Have you heard of jaundice? It's a symptom that quickly shows you that something's not quite right with your liver. It's hard to miss because it literally means you start turning yellow. One of the big things that people notice when, when they have a liver that's not working is that they can turn yellow, which, which doctors call jaundice. And it's because the the liver that normally would make bile and excrete bile into the bowel is not making bile properly. So all of those toxic elements that normally get excreted out in the bile build up in your body and you you turn yellow, you can have yellow skin. Your urine can actually turn a very dark color like tea. And um, often the, the bowel movements, the stool actually becomes quite pale. It's pretty common for babies to be born with jaundice. And while most of the time it's not a huge deal, Dr Hodgkinson says the condition always needs to be checked out. A lot of babies can be born jaundiced and it's related to the haemoglobin in babies before they're born. So haemoglobin is the red part of your blood that carries oxygen around and a fetus, so a baby before it's born, actually has a different type of haemoglobin. And the other part of it is your liver function. It takes a little while to to deal with this haemoglobin that you have differently as as a fetus. And so when you're first born, you can actually have this yellow colour related to the liver dealing with this different type of haemoglobin. And it fairly rapidly clears, but in some babies it can take a little while. Biliary atresia is one of the most common causes of liver failure in kids. It happens when a baby is born without a bile duct. The bile duct is a little tube that runs from your liver to the bowel and it takes bile from the liver to the bowel. And if you're born without one of those, then you quite rapidly develop liver failure as a child. Now, there are other reasons that children can be born with jaundice apart from biliary atresia, and most of these actually are quite serious conditions as well. So if uh, a child is born with jaundice, they, they actually need to see doctors quite quickly. And if it persists, it needs to be looked into by a, an experienced paediatrician quite quickly. There are quite a few diseases that can affect your liver. While some of them can be prevented, unfortunately some of them just happen and there's no real way to prevent yourself from getting them. In terms of other things that can occur any time when you're a child or an adult, there's a number of illnesses. One that is relatively common for patients to, if they have it, is called cystic fibrosis and that can affect your liver. There is a a number of other enzyme processes within the liver that can be affected and there's one called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. There's a number of other genetic causes uh, which affect the bile production in the liver. There's one called primary biliary cirrhosis and there's a number of autoimmune conditions that can affect the liver as well. One's quite usefully named autoimmune hepatitis uh, and then there's another one called primary sclerosing cholangitis. But as I mentioned, there are many, many, many things that can actually cause disease within your liver because the liver has so many different functions. If you start having symptoms that show your liver isn't working properly, you'll be referred to a specialist called a hepatologist to get a diagnosis. There are many, many tests that we run on patients to work out 
what is the cause of their liver disease. Now, sometimes it can be found very quickly because it's one of the more straightforward and common liver diseases. And then at other times, if it's a rare disease, it can be quite hard to find what the cause is. And that, sometimes that can take days or weeks or even sometimes months before you find out what the cause is. Every year, Dr Hodgkinson performs liver transplants on patients who have incurable diseases that have damaged their livers. But he also does transplant operations on people whose livers are unwell because of their lifestyle choices. So the, the most common reason for liver transplant in the past has been hepatitis C. However, with the new treatments that have come out, there's a number of new treatments that have come out for hepatitis C, and these have been very effective. We're now seeing a, a big decrease in the amount of patients who need liver transplants for hepatitis C. And we're seeing an increase in patients who need uh, transplants for fatty liver disease. The most common reasons for liver transplant is hepatitis C, liver disease due to alcohol, and fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease is exactly what it sounds like. It happens when your liver gets overwhelmed by fat buildup and can't operate properly. When you have fatty liver disease, the liver changes colour and it becomes quite yellow, like fat gets bigger in size, so it actually is bigger than it normally would be, and it becomes quite firm, more like a rubber ball rather than a sponge. And the edges of the liver, instead of being sharp and well-defined, become very round. So it, it turns into a bit of a round, yellow ball. Dr Hodgkinson says his job isn't to judge someone for their liver condition. In fact, it's surprisingly easy to damage your liver in our modern world. Because I see people who for various different reasons, and it's usually not their fault, but they've had things happen in their life and so their health has gone onto the back burner a little bit and they may have drunk too much alcohol or smoked or, or put on weight and it's affected how they are living after that and then some of them have even ended up having to have a liver transplant. Are you ready for this episode's mystery body part? I'm a thin string of tissue. In the womb, I guide the growth of a baby's mouth. Saliva can erupt from the glands at my base, a process called gleeking. If I'm unusually tight, I can cause issues with feeding early in life. Do you know what I am? Liver failure occurs differently from person to person. For some people, it takes years to develop, and in others, it can happen quite suddenly. Regardless of the cause, if you have liver failure, a liver transplant is your only treatment option to cure the condition. There's a number of ways that people can develop liver failure. It can either be a chronic process like cirrhosis where it takes a number of years to occur or you can actually develop uh, liver failure very quickly, what we call acute liver failure and this is often related to an infection or sometimes a, a drug reaction or a toxin that can affect the liver very quickly. And these people, within a matter of days or weeks, can actually have acute liver failure and need an urgent liver transplant. A liver transplant is a big operation, and it requires a large team of specialist clinicians. So with a liver transplant, it involves a very big team of doctors and nurses and uh, transplant coordinators and, and a number of different hospitals. So each time an organ donor becomes available, it sets in motion a big chain of events. So tragically, for transplant to occur, a patient somewhere has to um, have had a, a terrible accident. Now it might be that they've had a car accident or, or some other traumatic injury, 
or it may be that they've had something medically happen such as a stroke or some other tragic sort of medical condition which has caused their brain to fail. Not every donated liver will be right for every person requiring a transplant. A large adult liver won't fit the body of a sick child, for example, and the donor and recipient blood groups need to match. Once the transplant team know the donor details, it's all about finding the right match as soon as possible. Once that's done, we then decide which of the people who match that liver are the sickest patients and who are needing a transplant most urgently, and that's the person who will receive the transplant. So you can see that there's lots of decision-making and lots of phone calls and decisions around this. Once we've decided who the recipient is going to be, our coordinators will call the person and they will come into the hospital. And at the same time, we'll send a team of doctors out to the donor hospital to do the donor operation. And typically this takes place at, at all times of the day, but it can often happen at you know in the middle of the night or early hours of the morning. And so we have people going all over the state, perhaps flying to Cairns or Townsville or Rockhampton to do donor operations. While surgeons fly to carefully remove and transport the donated organ, Dr Hodgkinson's team at the PA begin to prep their patient to receive it. So at the donor hospital, we'll do the operation, remove the liver. It has all the blood flushed out of it and it has preservation fluid put in it and then it's put in an esky in ice and we keep the liver cold until we bring it back and do the transplant. While we're bringing the liver back to PA, there will be another team of surgeons here at PA who will have already started the liver transplant and they will be removing the patient's old and cirrhotic liver and then we'll be putting in the new one when we arrive back. All up, the process can take perhaps as long as 24 hours or more from when we first get called about the donor till when we actually do the transplant. Four years ago, Queenslander Jordan was one of the lucky recipients of a liver transplant when he was just 16 years old. Born with a condition called Allergil syndrome, Jordan lived with worsening effects from his unwell liver for his whole childhood. When I was born, I have a twin brother as well, um, and we both came out a bit, a bit jaundice. And so under the little UV lights that they do, they found that my brothers went away and mine didn't. And then they looked into it and I was diagnosed with allergil syndrome. So that one's a, a multi-organ um, condition um, that can affect all the organs. In my case, it was mostly my liver as well as a heart murmur as well. Jordan's condition affected his ability to do normal childhood things like attend school, do sports and even hang out with his friends. For myself, it was more to the point of quality of life. So for the first 16 years of my life, I was very lucky to make it to school four days a week. Um, I wasn't able to interact into sports like non-contact sports and all of that so I was kind of missing out a lot. Um, I'd miss out on a lot of schooling as well. When he was in year 10 he decided it was time to go on the transplant list but it would be 22 months until Jordan's perfect match liver came along. I'm usually a heavy sleeper so it was really weird because um, that night it was I think it was about 1am or 2am in the morning that we had this phone call on our home phone and I was just laying there and then 
hearing the phone, I jumped up and went straight to the phone. I was like, hello, hello. And they were like, hi, is this Jordan Bate? And I was like, yes, speaking. And they were like, we think we might have a liver for you. And then everything just felt like it stopped. Like I was just, I I couldn't believe it. I was just like, no way that they have a liver for me. Like we've been waiting for so long, which is fine because they have the perfect one for me. And then in came my parents um, into the kitchen and they're like, what, 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 what's happened? I'm like, we have a liver. And it was so emotional. Well, I was like, I don't know if I could do this. And they were like, just grab some stuff together and come down to the hospital. A few hours later, Jordan was at the hospital waiting for the surgery that would change his life. And the really special thing about it was that they said that I'd be sharing a liver and they said it would be with a little baby. And so that was so special to know that I'm sharing this special gift with like not just myself, but with someone else who has now also been able to have a new quality of life. And so it was a whole lot of emotions. And um, because I was 16 at the time also, um, I was like, I really want mum to come in with me till I go off to sleep. And because, yeah, I was 16, they were able to accommodate that. And so mum was with me the whole way as she has always been since day one. So that was pretty reassuring. Dr Hodgkinson explains that a liver transplant is not a quick or risk-free procedure. His patients are often very sick and have to be monitored carefully by anaesthetists while they're put to sleep. After they're asleep and stable, he and his team get to work. Once they're asleep, then I'll make an incision on the tummy and it's, it's quite a big cut. It starts just under your ribs in the middle so, and then it goes down towards the belly button and then goes across to the right-hand side. So it's a big L shape. And sometimes we even need to make it bigger and we have to go across the other side and it's what we call a Mercedes-Benz incision. It looks like the the symbol for a Mercedes-Benz. And so that means we've completely opened up all the muscles of the tummy wall just to get to the liver. One of the many jobs of your liver is to make a protein that helps your blood clot. This means patients with liver failure will often bleed a lot during surgery. But there's an ingenious tool that Dr Hodgkinson's team uses when this happens. Very frequently there's a lot of bleeding during a liver transplant. We actually have a machine which is called a a cell saver where when blood bleeds out of blood vessels we suck it up through a sucker and it's collected in this cell saver and this blood is then washed and it's returned to the patient. So this is a way of saving people's blood while they're having a transplant. We actually have a, a couple of people who just run this cell saver machine for us while we're doing the operation. About six hours later, the transplant is complete and the patient begins their recovery journey. After the transplant had happened, I think I was in surgery for about four hours and I think it was still a couple of days before I came to with like all the anaesthetics and making sure that everything was fine. I believe I was in ICU for like two days and then they put me onto the ward. Um, So waking up and everything, realising that I no longer felt icky in the tummy anymore. Having a roommate as well was pretty cool because they'd also just gone through a transplant. So we were able to kind of talk to each other and how are you feeling today and how are you feeling and all the blood tests as well and just making sure that levels were fine. I think when I realised that everything was getting better was I think I only spent about a week 
a week and a half or something in the hospital and then I was out in the real world and it was just crazy to believe that I've just had a like a major surgery and now I'm back at my house like it took a week. Unfortunately Jordan had some complications after his surgery and had to go back to hospital for further bowel surgery which lengthened his recovery but as he got better over the months and started to feel stronger he noticed just how sick he'd felt before his transplant. Yeah, looking at life before transplant, I really didn't know how long I was really going to be ticking. Um, I think is the best way to put it. The future was very unsure. And knowing that after transplant that I was living off that one segment of the liver, I was like, there's no way that I could have kept going. Like, there's no way that I had another, like, three years without things getting really serious. Jordan's experience as a child living with a chronic condition and then recovering from his transplant surgery has inspired him to become a nurse. From the future now, I've been able to make at least a five-year plan and even ten because I can do that now. Um, I have the gift that allowed me to do that. So hopefully after studying, I would really, really like to get a graduate position, um, either paediatrics or adults. I'm not really picky personally, but I find that being a paediatric nurse, being that that was majority of my life in hospital, I'm able to kind of understand what they're going through and able to help the parents in terms of like my mum's experience as well. And so hopefully, yeah, get graduate and all of that and eventually maybe settle down, have a family. For Dr Hodgkinson, it's seeing patients like Jordan go on to live full and healthy lives that inspires him. The things that make me get out of bed in the morning and make me most happy is coming to work and seeing a person who's been very sick and you've done an operation or been involved in their treatment and they've gotten better and gone back to being a normal healthy person. If you're interested in becoming an organ donor and potentially saving lives of people like Jordan, you can find out more information at donatelife.gov.au. We've also linked to Donate Life in our show notes. Most importantly, Dr Hodgkinson wants people to take time to talk about their desire to become an organ donor with their families after they've signed up. We know that if we ask people, would you be happy to be an organ donor, we we actually get at quite a high response rate. People say, yes, I'd be very happy to. But when it comes to the time of organ donation and we ask people's families, would you be happy for your loved one to be a donor, people saying yes is a lot lower than what we would expect. And so it's really important for people out there, if they would be happy to be a donor and, and help out these people, to actually talk to your family and make, make a commitment with your family and say, yep, this is something I would want to do, so that when it comes to the time, your family knows what your wishes are. It really is quite transformative for recipients. If we have a family who says yes to organ donation, Often we're having five, six, maybe seven or eight people who have their lives turned back from quite terrible back to normal. And so it's a very transformative thing and it's really important for everyone out there to consider could they be an organ donor and would they like to go through this and talk to your family about it. That's a really important thing. Let everybody know. While conditions like Jordan's that affect the liver can't be prevented, there are lots of things you can do every day to keep your liver well and functioning properly. 
We asked Dr Hodgkinson what the main things are that Queenslanders should be doing to look after their livers. The two most important things would be to have a safe amount of alcohol that they drink because we do see quite a lot of people who uh, over the years have drunk uh, a large amount of alcohol and they, they develop cirrhosis. So limiting the amount of alcohol you drink to safe levels is really important. The current accepted safe levels is no more than one to two standard drinks per day and at least a couple of days off each week where you don't have any alcohol. So that's probably the first thing. The second thing is related to fatty liver disease. And so it means that we all need to have a very healthy lifestyle in terms of what we eat and how much exercise we do. Treating obesity is really, really important as far as the liver goes. We, we're seeing a huge increase in people with um, fatty liver disease. So we, we have a huge team of people now who actually help people with fatty liver disease in terms of dietitians, exercise physiologists, and our transplant hepatologists are all aimed at helping people lose weight and to avoid fatty liver disease. The other important thing to do is to avoid the risky behaviour that might um, lead to contracting things like hepatitis C. And so IV drug use and other risky behaviour like that is really important to avoid as well. And what about detoxing? Should we be drinking any special teas or taking supplements to help our livers out? Dr Hodgkinson says it's a myth that the liver needs any extra help from us in the detoxing department. And products that claim to detox your liver might actually be doing more harm than good. In fact, the liver actually cleans itself very well. It, it has a, an amazing mechanism to clean itself. You don't need to clean your liver. What you need to do is avoiding dirtying up your liver in the first place. So that's what, what I was talking about, avoiding too much alcohol and keeping a, a healthy weight and a healthy lifestyle. So eating good healthy food and, and some exercise. And there's a number of medications or natural therapies out there that are marketed as liver detoxification. These things are not helpful for your liver. You do not need them. In fact, what you need to do is lose weight and drink less alcohol and your liver will take care of itself and it's an amazing organ. And in fact, some of these liver detoxes, the natural therapies, can actually be dangerous for your liver. And we've had people come with liver failure related to taking a natural therapy which has caused liver damage. Thanks for joining us for this episode of My Amazing Body. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Did you guess this episode's mystery body part? The thin string of tissue that has saliva glands at its base is your frenulum. You can see your frenulum underneath your tongue, connecting it to the bottom of your mouth. Congratulations if you figured it out. Thank you to Dr Hodgkinson and the team at the Princess Alexandra Hospital and Metro South Hospital and Health Service for lending their time and expertise for this episode. And thanks to Jordan for sharing his liver transplant story and inspiring all of us. My Amazing Body is brought to you by Queensland Health. Thanks to my podcast colleagues, producers Lauren and Jess, Carol, our audio technician, and Helen on music and sound effects.